everyone, welcome to another Ruby Roads. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel we have Andrew Mason. Hey everybody. And that's really all we have on the call today. So if someone else hops on, then we all introduce them. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Today, we're going to be talking about what should be asynchronous. And asynchronous, I think, is kind of one of those buzzwords that you kind of hear a lot. And usually along with asynchronous comes some terminology like thread safety and all those other kind of scary words. But I guess to start off, let's just talk about what is asynchronous. Oh, and I am waiting for you to tell me. (laughs) So basically, asynchronous is, at its most simple form, two things happening at the same time. So it could be some kind of JavaScript executing or on the server side, you have two parallel tasks running at the same time. So that's really all it means. You know, it's a big fancy word that means something just really short and simple like that. But asynchronous actions, they can live both on the server side and also the client side. So a lot of times in JavaScript world, when you make a server request, so you're making a Ajax call or something out to your server, a lot of times that can happen asynchronously. And so what's going to happen in your code, if you have the Ajax call out to your server, and then you have some execution of code that's supposed to happen after that execution of the Ajax call, then you might have a situation where those other lines of codes are getting executed because the Ajax call is still in process. So that would be a great example of kind of asynchronous gone wrong. And there's several different ways to handle that on the client side with doing something like a a promises or ensuring that the previous code executed, you wait for the return before you continue on with your code. Yeah, I know when uh, async await came out or became the buzzword of the month, that was uh, that was when I heard about it a lot on the client side, but typically before that, I had really only considered it to be a server side action. But yeah, with JavaScript async await, uh, that's pretty much all I know about it on the client side, though. Yeah, and I think that if you're getting real heavy with SPAs or something else, and a lot of asynchronous JavaScript calls are going to be much more important. Otherwise, you're just kind of ladder logicking through your application. So you're not going to have as much real-time updates and stuff. But on the server side, I think it definitely has a much different look. Because when we think asynchronous of two things happening at the same time, you know, technically you could have two different Ruby workers going, you know, behind a load balancer. And then that's 
sort of kind of like asynchronously being able to handle requests. But typically when we talk about asynchronous on the server side, we're more talking about background jobs or joining threads. Right. Do you think uh, client-side asynchronous tasks are becoming more popular as the JavaScript ecosystem seems to kind of push more towards that direction? I think it gets more annoying. I don't know about more popular. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot argue with that logic. You know, trying to troubleshoot failures and asynchronous actions can be difficult. Yeah, so this is uh, something I was going to bring up more so on the server side. Uh, is when when you throw an error, like if you want to, if you have a task that you want to run asynchronously, but if it fails, you want to uh, give the user some sort of like, just let them know. It's I've kind of run into some holes where I'm like, okay, this is gonna take a while, or I want to do this in the background, but if it fails, I want to let the user know somehow. So, do you have any tips or kind of ways to handle that? Yeah, so I would have a whole separate module with an application that was a notifying engine. And essentially what that did was it would be allowed to take in certain parameters and it would broadcast out to a user. So essentially, whether they have a little bell at the top of their screen that would then give them a dropdown or if they set up notifications for emails, you know, whatever the case, then a failed job, you could have it trigger out a custom notification that would then notify the user. Yeah, that's a notification, like you said, like uh, the material design bell or some sort of uh, notification drawer like iOS. That's typically where I go. Um, I've always wondered if there might be a better way, but it seems like that's the best way or it's the only way I really know of to really hit all the use cases. Yeah, because you figure that a notification at that point, or rather that asynchronous job, it's detached from that request. So whatever action you were trying to perform, what whether it was to send an email or perform some other kind of task, it's now detached from that request. So it's kind of living on its own, performing that one action. So within the catchers of the background job, I would have something that would then call out to the notifier. I wouldn't actually put all the code to notify within the background job. I would have a separate object that I would call. Right. So kind of stepping back a little bit, uh, when when do we choose to use asynchronous versus synchronous? Now I know like for me, what I'm going to reach for is if I'm going to have a a task that's going to take more than a couple of milliseconds or more, more time than I'm willing to let the user hang out and wait for it. Uh, that's typically when I reach for it, um, but I'm sure there's some other interesting use cases and solutions that we could use, either synchronous or asynchronous on. Yeah, so if if I set the bar for only allowing my users to wait a couple of milliseconds, I don't think I would ever program. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think more than 150 milliseconds plus, depending on what it is. And that's just simply the server rendering or the the server calls, the server executions, not the browser rendering. So I think that if I kind of have a rule of thumb, one, anything that's communicating with email automatically goes into a background job. 
So a forgot password, a sign up confirmation, whatever it may be, always goes into a background job, especially if you're communicating with a SMTP server, because the normal handshake and authentication on those can usually take a half second or so. But then anything that is calling an outside service, and if your service is set up as microservices, then I would include that as an outside service. Each microservice has an outside service because you don't want one part of your application to fail because an unrelated, detached part of your other application failed. So you wouldn't want both to fail because of that API call out from one microservice to another. Or if you're doing something like Twilio or any kind of server side on Google Maps, and I would put all of that into background jobs. Yeah, so something I'm actually working on right now at work, um, we have a, a feature that normally takes an acceptable amount of time, um, but they wanted to create sort of a batching function for it. So instead of just doing this one action, I can batch together like maybe 20 of them. So that's what I'm kind of working on right now and kind of trying to decide like, okay, if it's more than one, do I always just send it to an asynchronous task or is there like a threshold? Um, because I usually know how long they're going to take. There's a pretty solid average line, but it's kind of trying to decide where to draw that line. That's pretty much where I, this is a great topic for uh, what I've been working on this week. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that when we are also talking about what should be included as an asynchronous versus synchronous function, it's going to be anything that, as you kind of hinted to, that's going to take a significant amount of time, or you want to do something a little bit different, like give a user immediate feedback, even though there's still calculations going on in the backside. Right. Yeah. I mean, we already touched on this a little bit, but one thing I've been really trying to work through is if, if one job, if you send one job and it fails, like I want to give you that immediate feedback. But if you send a group of jobs and maybe one or two of them fail, I want to let the user know pretty quickly. And I'm probably going to go with a notification, but I, I keep trying to find maybe a better solution, a faster solution so that they can get that notification or get that feedback as quickly as possible without having to, oh, now I have a little notification badge. Like what if they send, what if they, if they batch together all these jobs and then they walk away? Like, I want to let them know, Hey, uh, that, that thing you did, it's, it's not going to happen. So I'm kind of trying to work through that right now. Yeah. And I think that really is going to depend on what platform are you on? If you're only on the web, you don't have a mobile app that you could do a push notification to, then you are going to be limited. You could do a SMS or an email, but then you also have the possibilities of doing a service worker or PWA uh, part of your application to then do a push notification on the web. So it may ding them or possibly ding their phone if they have the PWA installed on their phone. Yeah. The other thing with this is, so if, if I'm a user and I, uh, I bash together a bunch of these jobs and then uh, my shift is over or I leave. Um, I, I'm kind of trying like, I kind of want to have some sort of features so that other people may know like, Hey, we tried to do this thing and it didn't work. Um, that other guy's not responding within an acceptable amount of time, but we need to 
like address this quickly. So what, do you have any advice on how to deal with that? Without knowing like the more specific scenario, it's hard to say, but I would think that there would have to be some kind of chain of command of acknowledgement. So if a asynchronous job occurs, someone did not respond to a failed message, so a message gets broadcasted, if they don't hit acknowledge or read or I'm on it, then it's going to wait a certain amount of time, and then it's going to ping someone else. So that way, you know, you have at least a few people that are getting notified of it or have a, a blast that goes out to X number of people for a failed job. Yeah, the blast is what I've been thinking about. Um, it's also whether maybe I just show a, a banner notification on the app like, hey, there are some errors. Here's like a list of the errors that occurred um, so that anyone who's using the app who has access to that can go see it versus just sending individual notifications maybe to one person and then maybe to a few more and then maybe escalating that along. Yeah, if, if, any, if anyone who has access to the app has the ability to maybe resolve the issue or maybe escalate it to someone else, then I want to give them that ability. But at the same time, I want to... I don't want to just blast everyone like the second an acceptable amount of time passes and uh, an action hasn't been taken on this error that occurred. Yeah. So kind of a different use case for background jobs that I've implemented in the past in Rails. I actually used a background job and then I also used action cable. So the two combined actually gave a super powerful interface. And what it was, it was a user import. So I had a Excel file with, you know, probably about 500 to kilobytes of one megabyte of data, which is a whole lot of text. And I wanted to import it. Well, typically when you do a file upload on a web application, you hit the file upload and then it'll just upload and then you don't get really any kind of real-time feedback. You are able to do some kind of progress bar, but that's only for the upload of that actual file. It's not actually taking into account the processing of the file. So what I did was put into a background job. The file uploading happens. So that took only a half second or so. Then the background job would go through and it would start processing each one of those rows in the Excel file. And because I had the total number of rows, I was able to calculate a percentage of what row am I on. Because there was a lot of callbacks and things happening with processing that data. There was a lot of setup that the application had to do for each row. So uploading and processing the data was really slow. But once it completed each row with data, it then broadcasted using action cable back to the channel I was subscribed to. And then I had a bootstrap progress bar that filled up as it got through the data. So that's another use case for a background job where you're wanting to not make the user wait so something long running can happen. You want to the at least give them the option to get right back into the application and start working on it. But I used it for a real-time feedback on what was going on in the background job. And then as one of the rows failed or something, it then gave them an error message real-time saying, 
know, hey, this record failed to import. Here's the reason why. Yeah, I guess the thing that popped in my head when you said that is sort of the the downloads uh, icon or bar. I guess it depends on what browser you, you're using. I use uh, Safari, and there's a little icon in the corner. So when something's downloading, uh, it has like a queue, like a download queue, and you can see a progress bar of those advancing. And if as jobs succeed, they disappear. And if they fail, they um, show some sort of visual indicator. But then you can go and check that that little icon and see like, oh, out of all the jobs I sent, maybe three, three had errors. And here's those ones. And you can click on them and interact with them in some way. Mm-hmm. So we have um, a note about tools for asynchronous execution. Now, I have only heard of two of these, um, Active Job, Sidekick. And I'm hoping that you may know about some of these other, like Delayed Job, uh, Sucker Punch, and Q. So I haven't used Q before, but I have dabbled in Sucker Punch, Delayed Job, Sidekick, and Rescue. So all of those are essentially doing the exact same thing, and that is processing some kind of calculation asynchronously. And the thing is about each one of them is that they are very different in their own way. I don't know too much about Sucker Punch to be able to really speak to how it really differs from the rest, but Sucker Punch is meant to be a super lightweight service. So it's going to be light on the memory print, and then it's able to perform whatever kind of asynchronous job that you want. So I would probably use it on smaller or more embedded systems because I don't think that there is any infrastructure requirement to using it. You don't need a database. You don't need a key management system like a Redis or Memcached. You don't need any of that. So Sucker Punch can kind of live on its own doing asynchronous jobs. And I think that's where it really kind of shines. And for Sidekick, Sidekick does have an external dependency. It requires Redis. It's able to process jobs super fast. It's not too heavy on memory. But I think that the memory can increase its usage over time, and it doesn't release it. So typically, when I set up a Sidekick service for a web application, I usually move the background workers, or when I say background workers, background job runners, runners, all of that. I mean the Sidekick worker services or whatever asynchronous worker service. Right. Sidekick is going to be on its own virtual machines or pods or whatever so that it's not actually interfering with my web application. And it's a it's the one that I use most often today. And then you have something like delayed job. And delayed job, I think, is still really awesome. And there are still use cases for it today where instead of having Redis as your queue management, the storage for your queue management, delayed job is actually going to use your database. So if you have a pretty simple application that needs background jobs, but you need those background jobs to persist if something were to go wrong. Let's say your background worker isn't running, like Sucker Punch, then you're going to lose those jobs. They're gone. But Delayed Job is going to persist the queue into your database on some tables. And because it gets enqueued there, if your service worker or something crashes, then that queue is still there to then process. So 
in a event where your deployment strategy is really strange and it requires you to take down your application for a certain amount of time to do your deployments, maybe it's a risk management or whatever, you want to have a pristine snapshot of your database so that if you do have to roll back, then there's been no new data written during that maintenance window or something like that, whatever the case is. Then I've used delayed job to have a separate small application that had the MVP functionality of our service that we offered that would then store the data as it was coming in. So I had a separate database. It starts storing these enqueued records, never processed them, but it just stored them in these tables. And then once our maintenance window was over, we then enabled the delayed job worker again, and then it started processing that queue. So that way, the clients never lost the MVP functionality that they needed and that they were paying for core. But there was some functionality that they could not do, like run reports or something like that. But to get the data into the system, they still had that functionality. So I don't know if I would really trust a Redis queue to manage that, especially if we're talking about a lot of data coming in. Right. Yeah, I, I think Psychic seems to be almost the de facto tool for this, at least for me, I think at least there's a lot of uh, community resources around it. And, you know, Mike's really active in the community still. So I didn't even really know in the very beginning that there were other options because Psychic was always the one I saw in tutorials, always the one I used at work. But yeah, it was interesting when you were talking about Sucker Punch, how you don't even need a database. It almost escaped me until you mentioned it, that Psychic does need Redis. And so if you're you have to set that up and you have to maintain that. And if it goes down, which I've read seems to be, I haven't had a problem with it yet, but if Redis goes down, you have to deal with that. If you're using Docker and you're spinning up pods, then you have to have maybe a separate Redis container and you have to manage that and deal with any, anything that goes wrong there. So yeah, I mean, having, not having to rely on anything other than the actual library would be cool. But like I said, I feel like Sidekick is usually the de facto option for, most Rails apps, at least from what I've seen in my experience. Yeah. And it's not always the go-to solution. So if you are trying to keep costs down for a application, and if you're deploying to AWS or Azure, and you weren't using Docker containers, or if you weren't using uh, Kubernetes or anything like that, if you're just spinning uh, virtual machines and using the available services that they had, then you may want to use delayed job instead because that's going to reduce one dependency for your infrastructure that you have to have. Because chances are you're already going to be using a database, but you might not be using Redis. Your application may not have any real need to do caching or anything. But then that brings up a point about the caching within a Rails application. Because in a Rails application, if you're just doing fragment caching or Russian doll caching, then you're going to have a Redis instance that is using volatile memory. And essentially what that means is that the memory is going to get wiped out. So as your queue or your database, your Redis database gets full, it's going to start expiring the oldest keys first or whatever the expiration policy is. But with something like Psychic, you actually want to have a non-volatile Redis instance stood up. So typically it's not good practice to use the same instance that you were using for your fragment caching. 
And unfortunately, Redis, even though you have multiple databases in Redis, the actual Redis server settings is where you're saying it's volatile or non-volatile memory. It's not actually specific to each database. That's pretty interesting. I hadn't even heard that before. Yeah, I talked to Mike. It was a while ago now, and we were having that kind of discussion. And, you know, yeah, if you're a super small shop and you're just really doing some background jobs on emails or something like that, and you're doing some pretty light caching, then it's not going to be too big of a deal, uh, especially if you have a decent amount of Redis space. But in best practices world, it's something that you want to avoid and have two separate instances. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Yeah, kind of going along with that, uh... The other day I ran into, I wanted to have a, basically a button where I could export a CSV of a certain amount of data. And the more data you wanted, obviously, the longer that took. And when I was looking for solutions on how to um, cache that somehow, I saw a lot of stuff related to, you know, put it in a, I think there's a couple of sidekick um, cron-based libraries. I can't remember off the top of my head, but or put it in a cron job and then run it in the background asynchronously and then update the cache at every certain interval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I refer to that as cache warming. So if you have a partial within your application or a chunk of data that is very CPU intensive to build the initial time, then you can have a background job or something that will go through and it'll warm up your cache. So it'll build all those caches without the user ever having to request it. And those are good. So the cron job that you were mentioning, the one thing that you do have to be careful for, because there's one other asynchronous gem out there and it's called whenever. And the whenever gem basically writes to your cron tab, a periodic job to occur X number of times a minute or whatever. But the problem with doing that every one minute or two minutes, so let's say if you're accepting incoming emails into your application, so you are going to check a pop server, and that pop server is then, you know, you're doing a pull down on the emails. So the problem that you're going to have is that you're going to need that to run every two minutes in order to make it, quote, feel real time. So every two minutes you're executing this cron job. This cron job is essentially running a break task and that break task is going to have to launch up your entire application. It's gonna have to load the whole Rails application into memory to execute that job and then kill it. 
So you're exposing yourself to potentially having to oversize servers to handle a bunch of these cron jobs running. Whereas there is a gem called Psychic-Cron, which allows you to create cron jobs, but they're not true cron jobs. They are jobs that get scheduled into Sidekick, and then the Sidekick process that's already running executes it. So you don't have to wait for the boot up time of the Rails application. It's going to happen immediately, and you're not going to have those huge memory fluctuations. Yeah, I'm looking over the docs right now of Sidekick cron. I think this one popped up, and definitely Sidekick scheduler popped up. I think there was one more that wasn't whenever, but yeah, I mean, it seems like a good use case for if you need it. I don't really think this would be the first thing I would reach for, especially in a caching instance, I guess. Yeah, for cache warming, you're going to have to have a pretty crazy application in order for cache warming to really, you know, have a huge benefit. But you know, again, if you're talking about a dashboard, which is calling maybe 2,000 SQL queries on an uncached instance just to load up all that data on your dashboard, then you may want to do some kind of cache warming there. Doing background jobs with uh, Psychic Cron or, you know, any kind of periodic runner is actually really cool. So if you've never looked at GitLab, GitLab is a hosted service, or you could host it yourself, self-hosted, that's going to give you uh, a GitHub-like feel. So one thing I really like about it is that it's free to have self-hosted and everything, but as far as the asynchronous stuff, the number of psychic cron jobs that they have running is insane. They have stuff uh, to check periodically every hour for uh, stuck jobs or something else, you know, with their CICD, uh, checking for webhooks or the email workers. So it's something that, you know, I think they have uh, 30 different or maybe 20 different cron jobs running inside Kit Cron. So not to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but why would someone choose GitLab over like a trusted solution like GitHub or Bitbucket for that for even? So one reason would be if they needed to have the confidence of absolute control over data. So when you are using an external service, you are entrusting that external service to be there tomorrow, to not have their doors or servers raided by the FBI or something crazy like that. You know, which, you know, let's face it, with GitHub and those kind of services, that's not going to happen. I would hope not. But Having control over your data is one important reason uh, that you would want to self-host it yourself. But as far as using GitLab versus GitHub or the other solutions, Bitbucket, it's really going to be a matter of preference. So if you don't agree with the politics or direction of a particular company, or you don't like who they were acquired by, then you may want to reach out for something else. Uh, I've used all three in the past. Personally, the Bitbucket is my least favorite. Uh, it's made by Altassian or Altassian acquired it, whichever. And it just doesn't seem as snappy as the others. The self-hosted instance of GitLab that I use is really responsive. It's something that, you know, 
I enjoy using. And then I also use GitHub and Azure DevOps. So a few other ones. So can you think of an instance where you, a lot of people may reach for asynchronous activity, but it's possibly not needed, or there may be a better way to solve the problem you think you're having? Basically, asynchronous gone too far. Hmm. I think, well, I think the only real instance of asynchronous kind of gone too far, I think, is in the microservices land. I think the whole, you know, 100% microservices infrastructure is overplayed, and it was, I haven't seen it well executed so far. You know, there's always drawbacks where a monolith would have just been a lot easier. And so the asynchronous communication that you have between the different microservices and stuff, I think is a over-optimization, or in my opinion, it's a de-optimization. Yeah, it's funny that people still seem to be moving towards microservices, although everyone I hear, like podcasts, uh, talking in person or on the internet, seems very anti-microservice. So it's it's interesting to me that it still um, seems to be a trendy thing almost. I don't think it is. I think that we're at a point today where people have seen the pains that microservices have caused on the DevOps side of things and the overall maintenance of the application. So I don't think it's as trendy as it was a few years ago. So I think really getting back to the monolith is where a lot of people are going to be happier in the long run. And that's leaving out the whole debate of JavaScript frameworks and all that. Yeah, I don't think either of us want to travel down that road today. Typically, when I see a microservices project, it's not a bunch of microservices. It's a bunch of micro monoliths where they put so much into one single microservice. It's not performing one little tiny job. So my idea of a great microservice is one that exists completely on its own. It's completely isolated from everything else that the other microservices or applications are doing. So let's say if you have a PDF generator. So within your organization, you might have several different products that need to generate a PDF. But some of these products are generating it as far as from a HTML page. So it's doing a WK HTML to PDF style thing. And you don't want to have to have all your servers for that project to manage that binary. Then you have other products using PDFs, but it's doing a form fill out. So a pre-existing PDF form exists, and you essentially want to create a duplicate of that form with data filled out on it. So like a doctor's form. And so my idea for a good microservice would be a microservice that has a endpoint that will take in parameters of which form to use and then which fields you want to input, and then it'll return or stream back a PDF. So it just it does one thing, it does have one thing super well, and it's completely isolated from the rest of these services. So it does not need any information except for the parameters that you're passing into it, and then it just spits something back out. But I think a lot of microservices today are just really big monoliths 
that are dubbed as microservices because they're following that infrastructure. Yeah, they almost become micro apps. It, it's almost like they they want to have a microservice and they're like, oh, but I need to have this thing and I need to have this thing. And it's soon it just, you don't have a microservice anymore. You have another app. Yeah. And essentially what they become are, as you said, separate applications that are completely separated. You've added more points of failure and it's just going to be more difficult to not only develop one, but also to deploy. So you might be better off doing a modular monolith where you have several Rails engines that are mounted into one main container application. So all the code is still completely separate, but then you don't have to worry about all the hassles that a microservice brings to you on the DevOps side, as well as the development side. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you said, I think where asynchronous things can really shine is for doing those things like uh, image processing and uploading stuff in the background. And I don't know, I, I see a lot of it done in line for some reason, but I think we're kind of moving towards, I, it seems like we went like too far. Like we were like, okay, we need to do a lot more things asynchronously. We need to speed up the experience. We need to put things in the background and let the user keep going about their journey through your app. But then it's, it's almost like we just went a little bit too far and seems the community is starting to move back towards the center, but I still, I still see a lot of uh, blog posts that are coming out about microservices. So still a little bit scary. So one other thing to point out about asynchronous function is that in Rails 4, they introduce active job and active job, I think is one of the greatest things that Rails has introduced because it takes away the need to have to really learn and function each one of these different asynchronous jobs. And essentially what you can do with an active job is basically swap out one job runner for another or one worker for another. So if you want to use Sidekick, then later you decide that was not the right choice for this instance and say you need to use Sucker Punch, then with active job being the front end template, you can change your backend runner to whatever you want fairly easily with very little cleanup. Before active job, you had to really develop your own jobs and then each one of those jobs would not be compatible, like a delayed job would not be compatible with the sidekick. But using active job as your front end interface to all of those backends, then it's completely a pretty much a seamless transition between them. One other thing I've seen talked about, and I'm, I'm trying to find the article where I read it, but it was about uh, speeding up your, your views with asynchronous um, jobs or starting, I, I, I think you could almost um, compare it to kind of what Facebook does where they start to, when you log into Facebook, at least this is what I've heard, I don't know if they're still doing it or not, uh, they start to use a neural network to kind of guess where you're going to go next. So, and then they started loading that up asynchronously. So if they think with, you know, 80% probability, this user is going to go to this page after visiting, I don't know, the home screen or the uh, pages where I haven't used Facebook in a long time. So, but that seems really interesting to me and definitely a way to speed up your applications. I guess it just seems like it has a lot of overhead and I'm sure it's a pretty 
tough problem to solve, but if it were a more straightforward or, or more of an easy path to do that, I think that would be a great way of speeding up your application for your end user. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are some things that you can do. So for example, with the dashboard example that we were talking about before, where maybe you have 2000 SQL queries that would normally run, but you want to give the user a quick experience to your application. So you load up the view, but before you start running all those SQL queries, you make each one of the little charts or whatever a background job. So there's a gem called Render Async that allows you to asynchronously make a call out to your database or to your background job to then render just that little component or that area of your view. Yeah, I literally have just stumbled upon that when, when you mentioned that, and that's funny. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I don't know if I would use it per se. I, don't, I guess I don't really have a use case for it at this moment, but I guess if you really needed it and you couldn't, you couldn't speed up like your Rails app in other ways, this could be an option. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you're talking about a lot of data, you know, speed is just not going to be there. You can only do so much with the speed, like you could create SQL views or MySQL views that would have the, that data kind of pre-rendered. But if you're then talking about a lot of data points, then you're still gonna have some overhead there. Yeah, and I guess this could fall under um, asynchronous stuff is uh, when you, you start preloading things in the background or you visit a page and you immediately only load the like minimum amount of data that you possibly could have, like when you first open the page and then maybe the user starts scrolling, but you've started uh, asynchronously fetching that data. So it, it seems faster, but you're really kind of just asynchronously grabbing that data um, and you just show the minimum you need at the very beginning. I know there's a lot of movement kind of in that area for um, some JavaScript libraries I've been following. Yeah. Yeah, the whole concept of like infinite scrolling, so pagination going to the next page just by reaching the bottom of your current page, I think that those really have a lot of good uses in some cases, like your Twitter feed. Being able to just keep scrolling and scrolling through all of the content is good, but not it's not the answer to every solution. I've seen it done really poorly where someone has really important content at the bottom of the page, like contact information or whatever that you need to access, but you can't access it because of the stupid infinite scrolling. Yeah, I was, I was going to point out that I have also seen that done very poorly. I've also seen it done well. I usually am the type of person that I can reach the bottom before it starts, um, it's finished loading the rest of the stuff that I need. So, you know, on some websites, that's always super annoying when you're trying to scroll down to get to the part you need and the server is just not fast enough. So yeah, I think it can work if you do it well, but if you if you don't sink a lot of time and effort and then really making sure that's a clean experience, then it can really be a bother. I mean, especially if you have, I'm sure you've seen this before, if you scroll to the bottom of the page and it's not done loading and then it kicks you back to the top. I don't think anything is more annoying as a user than that happening. Here's something more annoying. And basically every news company has followed this trend where they will 
you start scrolling down on an article, you reach the end of the article, but then there's a whole separate article that got rendered in. So it went out, fetched it, rendered it in, and you don't really see the end of your article and the start of this next article. You're just now on a completely different article. So I found that to be super annoying. Yeah, as soon as you said annoying and news site, I started like rumbling through like the top five things I could immediately think of off the top of my head that news sites do that just really bother me as a user, bother me as a web engineer. Like, come on, guys, you could you could do that differently, but you but you don't. And now I have to close ten modals and mute the video advertisement that's suddenly going on, and I can't find it because it's hidden behind a modal that's asking me to pay. Ah, it's just. It's very frustrating. The, the internet's almost garbage at this point. Yeah. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Are you ready for some picks? I am. I think I'm good. All right. Well, I'll jump in first. And the pick I'm going to pick is I got a new wallet. So I've had the same wallet for the past 15 to 20 years. And it started to get really worn out where if I held it wrong, like all my cards and everything would just fall out of it. And so I was on a business trip recently and I thought I need to get a new wallet so I'm not in that situation, uh, you know, and not realize that I dropped my cards. So it's a Levi's wallet and I'll post a link to it. And it's been really cool. I got it for like 20 bucks at Kohl's. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's about time for me as well to get a new one. I can go ahead and jump in here. So you mentioned uh, WKHTML to PDF earlier, which I have never enjoyed using, but it always seemed like the most mature option out there. But recently I stumbled on a gem called Rails PDF and just glancing through the documentation real quick, it really looks like a nice, easy to use way to um, generate PDFs in your Rails app. Because I, I don't know about you, but getting styling to work correctly in WKHTML to PDF is probably one of the top 10 most difficult experiences, especially if you're used to using modern CSS like uh, Grid or Flexbox. Like you can't use that with WKHTML to PDF. You're, you're stuck with floats. And I just, uh, I don't like to use floats. I don't, I, I think we're beyond that. So this uh, Rails PDF gem seems to be able to leverage some of the more advanced features of CSS and they have some great um, examples on their readme so i'll link that up in the show notes but i'm i want to try this out because i really would like to have to stop relying on wkhtml to pdf because it's just it's such a pain as it gets set up and then you have to provision your servers with the right stuff and uh, yeah 
this seems like it could be a better option. So one little life hack that I do with the PDFs and WKHTML to PDF is I will download a bootstrap CSS only. So basically it is just the gridding and some of the simple styling in bootstrap. And then I use that as my CSS template and it makes it a lot easier to work with uh, styling and layouts of the PDF where you can do some really cool things with it. Yeah, I've done that before in the past, but it's always a struggle to try to, like, I, I don't want to bring in all of Bootstrap CSS. I only want parts of it, but then trying to pull those parts of it out of Bootstrap is just nightmarish. Yeah. All right, Andrew. Well, it was fun talking about asynchronous jobs. I think it's something we could probably go on for quite a bit about. Yeah, it's definitely... Uh, it's an ever-evolving topic, so it was. Yeah, I definitely learned a few things um, from some of the stuff you mentioned. So I'm definitely gonna be checking out some of these other async Ruby um, libraries now that I know more exist other than the two that I was familiar with. Cool. Well, we'll call it a wrap, and I'll talk to you again. Yeah, man. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.